beautiful thing that God rescues us, right? Yeah. I said right and not amen, and some of you didn't know what to do. You were like, hey, well, hold on. Uh, yes, agreed. Indeed. Truly, that is the case. It is awesome that God has reached down into his creation and rescued us and invited us into experiencing real, true life. And every time we have someone go under the water, that's what we're celebrating together. We're celebrating this new, real, true life. And it's awesome. My name is Tim Griesbach. I get the privilege of being one of our pastors, and I get to wrap us up today in this five-week series that we've been in called Do Justice. And what we've been doing is taking a look at four particular issues within our culture today that are really, really relevant and asking the question, what does it mean for us to do justice when it comes to these areas? And when we started off, uh, Matt really started us off a long time ago when we were looking at this and thinking about like, how are we going to go about doing this? Because man, this just feels like it's really important. And where are we going to ground all of this? What's the foundational truth that all of this doing justice has to rest on in order for it to be effective and real and right and God honoring? And one of the, the theological concept that it ends up really resting on is like one of my most favoritest theological concepts in all of Scripture. And that's what me, Matt really introduced us to in week one of this series. When he introduced us to the idea in Genesis chapter 1 that we were created to be made in the image of God. Meaning we were made to be reflections of what God is like within his creation. And that that absolutely influences every aspect of how we go about trying to do justice in this world. Because not only are we acting as image bearers, reflections of what God is like within his creation, but we know that every single human that we interact with is also an image bearer. A reflection of what God is like and that their value is intrinsically tied to that. So we just went through these issues. We've been through three so far, and we're going to hit the fourth today. So the first issue we took a look at was, was um, prejudice. And we saw that when it comes to prejudice, what does it look like to do justice as image bearers of God? Well, it looks like love. And then in week three is what the second topic, and we took a look at poverty, and we said, when it comes to poverty, what does it look like for us to do justice as image bearers of God? And in a nutshell, we can see that it looks like love. The following week, we took a look at sexuality, a really hot topic in our culture today, and we said, when it comes to this issue of sexuality, how do we as image bearers do justice? Like, what does that look like? Well, in a nutshell, it looks like Love. And so today we're going to look at the last one. The topic we're going to interact with today is that of the value of human life. And we're going to see that when it comes to the value of human life, that as image bearers of God, when we try to do justice, it looks like love. Yes, yeah, spoilers. Come on, guys. That's what that's my job. I'm going to get us there, but we can get there together. That's fine. It looks like Love. And in each of these situations, it looks like loving God. It looks like taking him at his word, right? It's like, God, if you said something is true about this, we are going to trust you over everything else. And it looks like love horizontally towards each other. To where we say, 
I don't care if you agree with me or not, I'm going to love you like crazy. In fact, if you end up thinking I'm crazy because I'm loving you too much, perfect. Then we're in the right spot. And when we look at our culture today, we can see that, man, we have some work to do when it comes to what it means to do justice in valuing in, 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 in the value of human life, in human dignity, in human flourishing. We can see that not only in our culture today, but really for all of the history of humanity, the value of human life has been under attack. This shows up in different forms, in, in different emphases within each part of human history, but we really see it in three primary ways, at least from my observations. One of the ways we see this attack on human life take place is when it comes to valuing the human life of the unborn, right? In our culture, we talk about that as like pro-life, pro-choice. We talk about it as abortion rights. We talk about it as female reproductive rights. But at the end, at the very bottom of it, right, there's this like devaluing that can kind of happen when it comes to what makes the human life actually precious or actually valuable, we see that played out in some of the conversation even today around eugenics, right? Where they're saying, they're trying to use our science and say, okay, well, let's take a look at this little baby that's being formed and determine ahead of time if we think that their life is going to merit living or not. As if we have the capacity to understand stuff like that. But that's the process at hand, right? I mean, this is pretty close to my own heart because one of my best friends in the whole world, Pete, he lives with his family in New York. Their first child was born with Down syndrome. And that's one of those situations where the doctors surely at some point said, hey, so got some bad news for you, but there's a way out. And my buddy Pete and his wife said, we just want to have this baby and we just want to love him. Little Nico. And so I'm constantly asking Pete to send me pictures and send me videos of, geez, I think it's like three little kiddos now that they have that they are getting to care for. And Nico's the eldest, even though he's being out like paced in some of the areas. But man, this is little guy, love life. And he loves communicating with his brothers. He takes care of them, even while he's sort of shoving them around a little bit. He loves mom and dad, and he's constantly talking through sign language because some of the words are a little bit different. Man, his little fingers are like flying all over the place. But they decided that, man, that life is worth something, not just because they're like amazing and have so much incredible love for this little baby, which they do, which they are, but really because at the end of the day, they look and they see something about that baby as it's being formed and go, wow, there is value here. There's something about this that connects to something much bigger than just will he be happy or will he be productive? Will he contribute to society? We see this in other areas of our culture as well, the conversation around euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide, when people get to a point in their life and they're just looking at their own lack of capacity and they're in such extreme pain and they're trying to say, like, what do I do? How do I, how do I process through this pain? And, and I totally get it, right? I understand emotionally that, that spot where your body is just done and your mind isn't there yet. And you're like, how do I proceed? And in our culture, the conversation goes, well, we can make a way out for you. 
We can work alongside you to actually bring an end to your suffering. And we would take a look at that and go, man, but isn't there something deeper at play than just whether or not the person has capacity or whether or not a person is comfortable or whether or not a person is adding value into their world even? Like, isn't there something even at the core of that that just says, man, their life is precious? And the third way that we see this attack against human life and human dignity played out in our, in our world and really throughout all of history is just through oppression, through violence. It's not exactly an uncommon story, is it, that people who have power and influence tend to use their power and influence not to raise up those who are vulnerable and have no voice, but that they tend to use their power and their influence to build themselves up at the expense of those who have no power and no voice, at the expense of the vulnerable. You can look at basically every part of human history and see this played out. And I know that for those of us who follow Jesus, when we look at these different injustices, there's something that wells up in us. You know, different kinds of emotions that we tend to feel around this. But there's really one emotion we probably shouldn't feel. There's one response that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's this. It's surprise. When we look at our world and we see in these particular areas ways in which it feels like it's just a bit on fire, we shouldn't think to ourselves, how in the world has this come to be? How can they do something like this? We shouldn't respond with shock, like, can you believe this? Because we know that there is a real enemy in this world, that there is a real antagonist to humanity, to human flourishing, who absolutely hates human life. And it's the one we call the devil, Satan, the antagonist, the accuser. And we see that he has an agenda. The way that Jesus sums up his agenda is beautiful. In the first half of John 10, verse 10, he just says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. He looks at human life and human flourishing, and he hates it. And it's not an exaggeration to say he's hell-bound on destroying it because he knows what's really going on. He understands the bigger picture that humans were made in the image of God. And for whatever reason, the devil, our enemy, absolutely hates that humans were made in the image of God, made to reflect what he is like within this creation. And so he works tirelessly over generations to distort and to destroy that original purpose. I want to take us real quick to be reminded of that beautiful purpose. But we see first that this lie... That there's a lie that's present is in his attempt, in the enemy's attempt to distort 
the value of human life and to really just crush human thriving and human flourishing. You know, he does this in a lot of different ways throughout all of history, but one of the ways that's super consistent is through a lie because, I mean, one of the ways that the Bible talks about the enemy is that he's the father of lies. He's really good at convincing us to believe things that aren't true. And one of the lies that he's propagated throughout history and that has kind of a stranglehold on our culture right now is this, that human life is just a happy accident. Human life is just a happy accident. Like there's no creator, there's no purpose, there's no plan for all of this, that it's just a happy accident. And so you don't have to worry necessarily about any kind of accountability. Like, it's about just enjoying life. So you should try to enjoy your life as best you can and prioritize all the things that follow, comfort and safety for yourself and your, your little cluster of people, right? Or one of the ways that Keanu Reeves has stated this is that we're all stardust, baby. Right? Do you remember him saying that where it's like, we're all stardust. Like, we're all just this stars having exploded and collapsed in little particles that eventually somehow became life. And so here we are. And that this lie has such a stranglehold on our culture that if you were to go out and kind of push back against it even a little bit, most people would look at you like you're a little off, like you're a little crazy, like you're naive at best. Perhaps disillusioned or worse. But we as Jesus followers are among those who have heard from God through his word and have decided to say, yeah, you, you know what? If you're speaking, I'm listening. If you are revealing something, I want to see it. If you're conveying reality and truth, like we want to receive it and we want to trust you and believe what you say is true. And so when we go back all the way to the beginning, we see this theme that's been present all throughout this series, this beautiful idea of how God purposed us from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. He said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I think a lot of us are probably familiar with that verse 27. I don't think we often think much about that verse 28. I mean, maybe the be fruitful and multiply. Like some of you are like, yeah, this is good. Awesome. But like this, having dominion over the creation, what's being revealed here is that our purpose, that when God created humanity was to look like him, right? We're image bearers. We're looking like him within his creation, and he's inviting us to walk alongside him and to rule over his creation with him. Dominion is a weird word because we're used to it being like kind of harsh. Like, yes, I have dominion over these Whatever, right? Like, like I'm ruling over them with a fist, right? We're used to that concept of dominion. But here the idea isn't harsh ruling. It's working alongside with God to rule benevolently. To love the creation in the way that God has love for his creation. 
and to join with him in this purpose and all the while to be looking like he looks, to be faithful and merciful and gracious and full of love and kindness and patience. If you're anything like me, then take a look around the world and go, it doesn't quite look like that. I mean, when you're taking a look at what happens, you just flip the page a couple over and you see really quickly that Adam and Eve had a different plan. When you zoom into the creation account, you see even this more precious, this more intimate encounter of God's in, in like just establishing value and worth within humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we see this description of God not just creating from a distance, but getting close and getting his hands dirty. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. How intimate is that? How personal is that? Everything else, God just spoke into being, right? I just, I'm speaking, and suddenly stars in the heavens are filled with everything. He like speaks, and these, you know, the plants, and the sun, and the moon, and, and everything within creation that we see, the animals, and the waters, and the land masses, and everything is created. But when it comes to humanity, he gets close, and he gets personal, and he gets near. And he draws near and he forms Adam with his own hands. And when it comes to giving him life, he breathes his own breath. This word in Hebrew is super awesome because it's kind of got this idea of, of breath or spirit or inner being. And so it's like God is taking life, right? He is the pre-existing one and he's taking life and he's saying, now you too have life, O human, O man, and O woman. So life is very precious to God. And it ought to be precious to us. But then we see because, again, when you, like I said, you flip the page, and you get to Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve kind of have their own plan and go their own way and say, we don't really want to do things your way, God. We want to do things our way. We've got a better idea for how this thing should run. And they reject his plan and his purpose. And in their initial rebellion... That rebelliousness, that sin, enters into creation and infects everything. And along with that came death. I get the privilege and honor of being involved in a lot of funerals here at Crossroads Church. And I just can't help but feel that one of the most horrific things that should happen to an image bearer of God is to die. Because God doesn't die, right? Like, that's not what he's like. And I get to interact with people who are just heartbroken over the reality that humans die. And we do. I mean, every human after Adam and Eve has struggled with this reality that suddenly death is an option. You, you look over and continue the story, and it's not hardly anything past that initial rebellion where we see Cain kill his brother Abel. 
One of the first responses is to look at another human, another reflection of what God is like, and be like, I'm going to kill you. And that this devaluing of human life has just persisted then throughout all of our history. And this distortion, it's just so hard for us to deal with at times, especially those of us who have encountered God through his word, who have experienced life through Jesus. We, we have this tendency then to look at this distortion as it's being played out in our world. And it elicits a bit of a response, which I think is mostly actually okay. That initial response of frustration or irritation or anger towards injustice. I know that God, when he looks at injustice, is not indifferent. And I know that he is an emotional being. I know that when he sees injustice, he's angry about it. And one of the beautiful promises to us is that in the end, he is going to do something about it. Every wrong ends up being made right. And that injustice that we see and that we've experienced is dealt with. But for us, we're just humans, and so we have this tendency to really struggle with feeling emotions rightly. We can get angry initially for the right thing, but then the anger can kind of run away with us. And we can find ourselves, though triggered through an experience of injustice, fighting in a way that doesn't actually look like how our Creator God fights against injustice. So my question for us today is, as we encounter this injustice of the devaluing of human life in our world, in our culture, how do we fight? Because I think we probably ought to fight. It ought to elicit a passionate response in us. Anytime we experience injustice and we see it, how, how, how do we fight? I want to suggest three ways that we go about fighting. And my prayer for us today is that the Holy Spirit would convict us in our inner persons, in our hearts. Because I know that every single one of us is probably guilty to varying degrees of fighting in the wrong kind of way or to fighting the wrong enemy. And so the first way that we fight is by fighting against the real enemy. We fight against the real enemy. We give him and his forces the name Satan, devil, accuser, antagonist of humanity, and his legions of demons that follow his cause, right? We see this idea pictured out beautifully in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's against other humans. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Let me say that again. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting other humans. The other humans aren't the enemy. Who's the enemy? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. For so many of us who say that we follow Jesus, I see in our actions that we're treating captives of the enemy as the enemy. We're treating people who hold opposing views, who are actually pushing forward this culture of death, this culture of devaluing human life, and we're looking at them and saying, they're the enemy. 
But we see here they're not the enemy. They're not the one we're fighting against. In fact, to some degree, they're, they're some of the people we're fighting for. Because what do we know about captives of the enemy when it comes to Jesus? Does he come and destroy the captives of the enemy? Does he come and squash the captives of the enemy? Does he come and argue with them on social media? Jesus comes and he sets captives free. He brings freedom to captives and he brings love to captives and he brings life to captives. And so I'm going to say that as we encounter this injustice... And we have this passionate response rise up from within us. The first way that we fight is we fight against the real enemy, the devil. And then we're going to do this through prayer and we're going to do this through some other ways. But the second way that we fight is that we fight for more than just birth. It's bizarre to me sometimes how fixated and political it can become when it comes to valuing human life, that we can allow ourselves to be swept up in a conversation that kind of boils it all down to whether or not the child gets born or not. And now that matters a lot. We should absolutely utilize the itty-bitty amount of political influence that we have towards that end. Let's let children be born. That's a beautiful, awesome thing. But as followers of Jesus, we got to be way more than just about birth. we got to be about human flourishing, about what happens after birth, about how we engage with these little image bearers of the Creator King to help them to thrive in life and to help them experience His presence throughout their life, to help them understand what their purpose is. That they could have life not just now and in part, briefly, temporary, but that they can find Jesus as king and experience life forever. We have to fight for more than just birth. And there are some beautiful organizations that do that kind of work in our communities. One of them that comes to mind is an organization around here called Life Choices, right? Where they partner with young about-to-be moms who are caught in this, what feels to them, impossible decision between the path of life and the path of death. And then when they look at both of them, they don't understand how they could possibly choose either one. And Life Choices comes alongside them and says, we are just going to love you. We are going to equip you with information. And we are going to equip you with resources. And we are going to equip you with relationship. And we're going to equip you with love. And whether you choose the path of life, if you choose the path of life, we are going to equip you and we're going to be with you and we're going to support you and we're going to get you diapers and food and resources so that you understand how you can best help this little human thrive. And if you walk down the path of death, we are going to be with you. We're not going to shun you and cut you off and say, well, forget you then. We're going to be with you, and we're going to hold you, and we're going to cry with you, and we're going to love you. That for the Jesus follower, we have to fight for more than just birth when it comes to valuing human life. And the last way I'm going to propose that we fight is that we fight by wielding a radical love. We fight with a love that is just crazy with a love that puts ourselves at intense social or even physical and financial risk for the sake 
of valuing human life for the sake of identifying other people as image bearers of our God and of saying, you have value no matter what. And you're going to know that I believe that by the way that I love you. Jesus talked about it in terms of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. That this is how the Jesus follower fights. They don't fight with picket lines and they don't fight with pictures and they don't fight with parts of dolls hanging from trees. They don't fight with social media arguments. They don't fight with insults. For goodness sakes, the Jesus follower fights by wielding a radical love. And we've seen this since the birth of Christianity. Christianity really got its start in in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but it didn't really totally explode until the Roman Christians came under incredible persecution. And the Roman Empire went through some really, really difficult stuff. Some of the things that they encountered in the Roman Empire early on were some plagues that were like the real deal. Like plagues where it's killing thousands and thousands of people every single day. And the response of those in a position of power and influence was to distance themselves as much as possible from those infected by these plagues, to remove themselves from the situation, to keep themselves safe. But not the Christians. The Christians, while everyone else was running away, were looking at those people suffering and saying, God loves them and their lives matter. And so even if it costs me my life, I'm going to go care for them. Even if it costs me my influence, my comfort, my health, whatever it takes, I am going to care for them. I am going to love them. And one of the Roman emperors at the time looked at this situation, and he was not super happy with Christians and trying to actively figure out, like, how do I wipe out this group of humans? This religion is not good for our country. Like, they don't understand our practices. In fact, they're telling people to, like, disregard our practices in favor of this Jesus guy from hundreds of years ago. Like, how do I get rid of this? And one of the ways that he expressed this frustration is in this quote where he said this, how are we going to stop the spread of Christianity when they're so kind, willing to fight for life, even in the face of death. My desire is that Crossroads Church would be a church where we fight for life, even in the face of death. And that we would be a church known not for our political radicalness, but for our radicalness of love. The people would look at Crossroads and go, I'm not actually really even totally sure with how they vote because they don't talk about that a lot, but they sure love like crazy. Because you have neighbors and you have coworkers and you have family members who in their life are going to absolutely come into situations where they are going to struggle with which path do they choose. When it comes to valuing human life, they're going to struggle and say, do I follow the path of life or do I follow the path of death? And both are going to seem utterly impossible to them. Why? Because they're captives. And my hope is that you are the kind of person who has been so transformed by the love expressed to us through Jesus that you are already active in their lives. 
That you're not like trying to hop in at the last minute and say, hey, I noticed that you have to make this decision. You should make this one. But that when they find themselves in that situation, trying to make a decision like that, that they think to themselves, well, I know of Chris, or I know of Susie, or I know of Annie. They love me so much. I wonder if they might have an idea. And that you would have an opportunity then to share God's actual, real love with them. Like that you would manifest it, not just through theoretical ideas, but through action, through hugs, through visits, through conversations, and through support. And that you would invite them into what Jesus has made possible for us. Going back to that first verse that we looked at today where it showed what the enemy's agenda is, well, Jesus also has an agenda. And it's the rest of the verse. Again, John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus invites us into an abundant life. And he did this through a radical love. Jesus didn't love far off and away where it's safe from all the mess that we've made of creation. Jesus took on humanity, onto himself, and entered into creation, coming and walking alongside us and living with us and loving us and ultimately dying on the cross as an act of sacrificial love. And he said to us, if you believe in me, you can have this abundant life. You can have this eternal life. This is what he invites us into. A life that is more than just birth. A life that is even more than just human flourishing here in the 70, 80, or 90 years that we might have, but an abundant true life that for the Jesus follower, our hope is set in that abundant life that is forever with him. Forever and ever. Our hope's not set in today or in a week from today or a year or 50 years from today. It's set in 10 billion years from today. That he will still be satisfying our souls with life to the full. And so in closing, I just want to make sure without a doubt that you have an opportunity to have that life. That Jesus in coming in and dying on the cross, established us for us a way for us to be forgiven from our rebelliousness against God. That he made a way not for us to somehow earn a right standing before God, but to be given it for free because of the radical love of Jesus. And that when he rose from the dead, what he essentially did was not only pave the way for what life was going to look like for all eternity, but he said, you can trust this. How many other people do you know have predicted that they would be killed and then predicted that they would came back to life from the dead and then did it? <laughs> that he establishes trustworthiness for us. And he says, you can believe me. And so I want to invite you today to believe him, to take him at his word, 
And that when he says that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life, that it's true. And that you would trust him as your Lord, as the one who gets to call the shots in your life, and as your Savior, the one who rescues you from your rebelliousness against God. So if you want today, all you have to do is believe that. All you have to do is trust him, to take him at his word. And I'm going to pray for you right now, and I want to invite you to pray along with me to join me in this prayer. And so, Father, I do ask right now, Lord, because I believe that there are people both here and people that are joining us digitally who, who want to experience the life that you have for us. And you have made a way for us to essentially get all the way back to life in the garden with you, to life before it was ruined by our rebelliousness. You've made a way by entering into creation and by taking on our sin, by taking on our rebelliousness onto yourself, by bearing that punishment so that we don't have to, so that we can be free and so that we can experience life abundantly. So, Father, I pray right now that people would, that you would call them to yourself, that they would put their trust in you as their Lord and as their Savior. I pray that they would look to you and ask you for forgiveness, recognizing that they have up to this point chosen the path of death. And that they declare right now that they want to follow the path of life. Father, will you please do this today? And Lord, for those of us who have been following the path of life because of Jesus, Lord, we just want to offer our whole selves before you as living sacrifices. Like Jesus himself, Lord, we want to pour out ourselves for others around us. We want to love radically no matter what it actually costs us because you've set that example. You've paved the way for that kind of love. Will you, Lord, please reach into our hearts and remove the indifference and remove the animosity towards captives and instead fill our hearts with love for you and love for others. Lord, we pray that you do this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you today that either if you've been joining us digitally or if you are here and you've decided to follow Jesus, well, I want to invite you to not do that all on your own. It's not like a secretive, independent type of experience. And when you follow Jesus, when you decide to follow him, you're like joining this huge family of people who were previously captives who have been rescued by his love into grace. And so we want to walk alongside of you. And so right now, you can just reach out to us using that same number as before, 720-513-1933. And if you text the word Jesus to that number, we will connect with you. And we will walk alongside you. And we'll help you understand what it actually means to follow the path of life with Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And this is such a big deal to us that this is one of the reasons we remember Jesus in his sacrificial love, in his radical love, every single week through communion. And so if you've got, you can get out your cup and we're going to remember him now together. That we remember that when he was at the table before he was about to be betrayed, as he was gathered with the disciples, 
he took a meal. And so if you're at home, you could just grab some food and some drink. Here we've got little like wafer things packaged with juice things. But the idea is the, the symbol of what's actually happening there. Because he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it to them all. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when we eat the bread, we remember that Christ gave himself to rescue us in a radical expression of love. Let us eat it together now. And after the dinner, he took the cup and he passed it to them all. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. His blood was about to be shed to make sure that we could be forgiven, to make sure that we could be with our creator. So do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember that Jesus spilled his very own blood for us in love as we drink from the cup. And we also here at Crossroads believe that when we encounter this incredible love through Jesus, that it's not just enough to hear about it and then go on our way, but that this news, this good news, elicits a response as well. And it's a, a response of praise. It's a response of surrender. It's a response of worship where we bow our hearts before Jesus is King. And so wherever you're at, we want to invite you to stand, to take a posture where you are ready to engage not only with your mind, not only with your heart, but with your whole self. Like sometimes getting our bodies in the game is really what's needed to help bring our hearts along. And so you can stand up if you're at home, find a posture to help work for you when it comes to preparing to just praise, to respond to this incredible news that we have. And during this time, we also like to care for each other. So man, if you are joining digitally and you've got prayer requests, you've got stuff where you're like, man, I need someone else to know what's going on and to be with me and to be praying for me. There's a button that you can click and someone would love to pray with you. And here, if you'd like to pray, you can come on over along this wall. There'll be people over here and out the back hallway that would love to be able to pray with you and encourage you as we celebrate and respond to the incredible news that we have just seen and experienced through God's Word.